0: Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening, and enjoy today's message. This week on Southcrest Live, featuring Dr. David Wilson, we continue our new study in the book of 2 Peter called Knowing... And growing. In verses 16 through 18 of chapter 1, Peter establishes his authority to testify of the works of Jesus, particularly the transfiguration of Jesus, declaring that these are much more than cunningly devised fables. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter 1 for, Take it from one who knows, from Pastor David Wilson.
1: Your Bibles, would you open them to Second Peter, The end of chapter 1, we're going to finish chapter 1 today. I want to begin reading in verse 16, even though I'll be focusing on verses 19 through 21. Would you stand while I read God's Word? Y'all do believe it is God's Word, don't you? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. By the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we ask you to speak to our hearts now, reaffirming, reassuring, convincing some of your word and the preciousness of it. We pray that you'll speak to us, encouraging us, guiding us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You don't know who to believe anymore. People say stuff, and stuff gets on social media. You don't know what's true, what's not. I have some bad news for you. This will probably be my last Sunday with you. I received a call from the IRS this week indicating there was a warrant out for my arrest. (laughs) And that the only way I could pay my back taxes was with a gift card. y'all gotten that call well I hope you're not believing it because it's not true but nowadays you don't know who to believe on something like that surely you know not to believe that the IRS will not call you they will come after you no I'm serious they won't call you a lot of people don't believe the Bible The Bible is clearly the most influential book the world has ever known. It was written by 40 different people over a period of 1,600 years in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Its writers came from all walks of life. There were prophets and priests, shepherds, kings, servants, doctors, tax collectors, Pharisees. It was written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. There's 400 years that separates the Old Testament and the New Testament. The writers inscribed God's word on sheepskin and goatskin, papyrus, and parchment. The first five books were written in the Sinai Desert Peninsula. At least four of the letters of Paul were written in prison. Peter's writing this one in prison. Daniel wrote from the courts of Babylon. Some of the Psalms were written in the hills of Judea as David watched over the sheep. And yet, when you read the Bible as a whole, recorded over all those years by so many different men by, and so, under so many different circumstances, you will find that it tells one story, the redemption story. It bears the mark of one author, God. Suppose I chose 10 of you, and I gave you this assignment. For the next year, you're going to write about the real meaning of life. You're going to write it down, and we're going to compile it together. Now, you cannot talk with one another. You cannot consult with one another, even though you speak the same language and live in the same community, and you are in the same church But at the end of this year, we will compile all of those accounts of the meaning of life. Do you think for a moment that they would match? Now, probably I would say that, I would hope that you would say, well, the meaning of life is found in Jesus Christ. But that probably would be about the only place that you would agree. Well, isn't it amazing that over 1,600 years with 40 different people involved, that there is a thread that follows all the way through the Scripture because it begins in Genesis in paradise. There's a tree in the middle of that paradise. It's recorded by Moses in the book of Genesis. And then all the way to Revelation, you have John who's also talking about a paradise, (laughs) and there's a tree in the middle of that paradise. And all the way through the Scripture, you find that God is trying to rescue mankind who sinned against his holiness and righteousness. And the first man was banished from the garden, and God's been trying to get man now to come to the second paradise through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have more manuscripts on biblical texts than any other ancient writing, period. That tells us something about how God has preserved his word over the centuries. There's 25,000 partial or complete New Testament manuscripts that we have, including 6,000 in Greek, 10,000 in Latin, and almost 10,000 in other ancient languages. But even if we did not have those manuscripts, did you know that the early church fathers wrote and quoted so much of the New Testament that we could put almost the entire New Testament together just from their writings because they quoted the New Testament 86,000 times. We're going to talk about the Bible for a moment. Peter is about to attack the false teachers. Now, when I say attack, he's going to debate it. He's not going to physically harm them, but He's going to attack the teachings of the false teachers who were basically saying, Peter, you guys are out of your mind if you think Jesus is coming back. You guys are out of your mind on all the stuff you told us about Christ. And and so they were trying to add to the scripture. And we'll look at some of that false teaching that you're going to find out is still prevalent today. Even though it was going on back when Peter wrote this about 60 A.D., somewhere in that time frame. Before he begins to combat that, he he didn't says. But I want to remind you that that what we have from God is true. Now they had the Old Testament. The canon of the Old Testament was finalized about four about the fourth century BC. So they had the Old Testament writings and the prophets. The New Testament obviously was being written. Paul was writing letters, Peter was writing letters, and others. And so he refers to the prophets, he refers to the scripture. And I want you to see how he affirms the truth of the scripture. First of all, you'll notice he, then you'll notice the confirmation of God's word. Now, I want you to look at verse 19. It says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, or the King James says a more sure word of prophecy. The the English Standard Version says we have something more sure, the prophetic word. There are two different ways you can interpret this. King James, in the English Standard Version, takes it to mean that even though, and Peter would be saying, this is what they say Peter would be saying, that even though we were eyewitnesses of Jesus and we saw the transfiguration on the mountain and we we witnessed what Jesus did, even more sure is the prophetic word that's already been given to you by the prophets. The word of God is a lot more sure than experience, in other words, and there are a lot of people who hold to that. The other way of interpreting this and understanding is that Peter is saying, and and in your New King James Version, your New American Standard Version, the NIV, basically state it this way. We have the word of the prophets, and now we have seen that prophecy fulfilled in Jesus. It makes it even more sure. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. They had not seen all of the prophecies of Jesus fulfilled, but they had seen the the prophecies the prophets had told. You know, there are about 318 prophecies about Jesus coming the first time. And he fulfilled every one of them. Now, folks, I want to tell you, that's no accident. That happening by accident is mathematically impossible. Let's take eight of them. 318. Let's take eight of them. What are the odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight of the 318 by accident? Because the Bible said where he was going to be born. They said he'd be born of a virgin and so forth. Peter Stoner, and I've told you this before. It's been a while, but I told you Peter Stoner, the, the math, mathematician, calculated the odds of Jesus just fulfilling eight of them. And it, it was one in, uh, I've forgotten how many illions it was. I can't even remember the first part of the illion. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? But he, but he demonstrated it, he illustrated it this way. He said, you take silver dollars and you spread them all over the state of Texas Four feet deep. That's a lot of silver dollars. You mark one of them. Take a marker, mark one of them, put it anywhere in the state of Texas that you want. And then you drop a man blindfolded in the state of Texas somewhere. And he can walk anywhere he wants to and pick up one silver dollar. The odds of him picking up the one that's marked. It's the same odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight Of those prophecies, three hundred of them he fulfilled. I don't even know if there's a word for that illion on the other end of it. But Peter is saying we have seen him; he has fulfilled the prophets. It makes the word of God that much more sure. Now remember, he's about to talk about the second coming. And them refuting the second coming and basically what he's saying, if the prophets are that sure and all of those prophecies have been fulfilled about Jesus, don't you think that they could be true about him coming again? That's how I interpret it. That's what I believe he's saying. I believe it's both. I believe it's the eyewitnesses of the apostles that saw the fulfillment of the prophets of Jesus coming that makes the word of God that much more sure and also if you go back to chapter 1 of 1st Peter you'll see in verses 10 through 12 he said the prophets even prophesied under under the leadership of God things they did not even understand the prophets didn't completely understand salvation like we understand it because we're on the side of the cross and the resurrection they didn't understand it, in verse 12 says, but, but we have the privilege now of being on this side of the cross and the resurrection and Pentecost and the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We are privileged to know that all of that came to pass just like God said it would, and that makes it even more sure for us. He said in 1 Peter chapter 1, they didn't completely understand, but we do now. Folks, I want you to know that the Word of God you hold in your hand is true. It's real. It's authentic. He also not only confirms the Word of God, but he states the Word of God can be trusted. He then mentions what I call the illumination of God's Word. Look at verse 19 again. And we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Interesting terminology here. He said that the word of God is a lamp. It's a light. And you would de- do well to heed the word of God. We study the word of God so that we can apply it to our lives. We, we study the Word of God so we know what to do and what not to do, don't we? One lady was sending a Bible to a relative. She had it at the post office all wrapped up in a box, and the post office clerk asked the question, is there anything in that box that can be broken? She said, only the Ten Commandments. <laughs> we find the Word of God, it is, it is a lamp. He said, it's a light in a dark place. You now, that, that reminds me of what we used to learn in Bible school when part of it was the pledge to the Bible. It, it, was, the, it was a quote of Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a, a light unto my path. It, it shows the way. And it's interesting, this word dark in verse 19, it's the only place it's used in the New Testament. It does not mean just the absence of light. It means dirty or foul We use words like gloomy and dismal and dreary and bleak, grim, heavy, joyless, cheerless, hopeless in describing the world that we live in. That is the picture here. Our world has been darkened by sin, and it's getting darker by the day, according to to the Scripture. And when we look in the Scripture, it shows us the light of the gospel, the redemption story. It shows us that we can be saved. It shows us that there's hope. It's a lamp that shows us where to walk, shows us where not to walk. It, It exposes false teaching. It exposes false teachers. It gives our life meaning and purpose. God's Word will do this as long as it's dark in the world. Amen? Where do you go for strength? Where do you go for guidance? Where do you go for hope? Right here, in this dark world we live in. But Then notice the expression. You do well to heed this as a light that shines in a dark place until. Until what? The day dawns. The literal translation is it shines through. Until it shines through. What does? The day dawns. And the morning star rises in your hearts. The morning star is a word, is one word. It's the word phosphorus in the Greek. Phosph means light. Pharos means to bear or to, to carry. It means light bearing. The morning star is the star. Some say it's Venus, but it's the star that you see right before the dawn. It announces the dawn's coming. Well, I believe that the references here to the morning star and the, and the day dawning, I think those are references to the return of Jesus. Because Jesus is called the morning star in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 28, and chapter 22, verse 16. The gospel calls him the day spring from on high, Luke 1, 7, 178 And Peter wants us to see that, in fact, there will be a dawn of a new day and the night on earth will be over. He said, this takes place in your hearts, meaning the emphasis is on what takes place in... In a person's soul, Peter's pointing to the transformation of the heart, the mind, the life as the prophetic scriptures are heard and read and believed. He's making a remarkable statement here. He's saying that the truth in the Bible will continue to point people to the ultimate source of truth and light and salvation and redemption. It keeps pointing people to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Paul said the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4. For we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6. We're supposed to take this light and to heed it, apply it, obey it. Many years ago, true story, happened many years ago, but naval officer Frank Koch was quoted in an article for the magazine of the Naval Institute. Here's what Frank said Two battleships have been at sea on maneuvers in heavy weather for several days. I was serving on the lead battleship and was on watch on the bridge as night fell. The visibility was poor with patchy fog, so the captain remained on the bridge keeping an eye on all activities. Shortly after dark, the lookout reported light bearing on the starboard bow. The captain said to the signalman, Signal that ship, we are on a collision course. Advise you change course 20 degrees. The reply came back, advisable for you to change your course 20 degrees. The captain said, Send this, I am a captain, change course 20 degrees. The reply came back, I'm a seaman second class, you had better change your course 20 degrees. By this time, the captain was furious. He spat out the words, Send, I am a battleship, change course 20 degrees. The signal came back from the light that said, I am a lighthouse. (laughs) And he said, we changed course. (laughs) The Bible gives us light on the outside so that we can see clearly. It gives us light on the inside so we can understand spiritual truths. We're not to take the word of God and try to change it to our liking. We're supposed to change our lives according to the word of the Lord. And folks, there's so many people today that keep attacking this. And so that's why I want to spend just a moment, and I believe Peter mentions the origination of God's word. Um. Just to give you an idea of how long I could go on this, I normally bring about seven or eight pages of script up here to use as my notes. I had 24 pages yesterday. (laughs) So I'm going to go till about one, if that's okay with (laughs) y'all. No, I'm going to finish on time. I want you to look at verse 20. Knowing this first that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now the Roman Catholic Church has taken verse 20 and they have used this verse to tell individuals that they are not permitted to interpret the Bible for themselves. Rather, they must depend on the official teaching of the church. The practical result of this has been that many Roman Catholics, many have never read or studied the Bible on their own. For many years, the church opposed the translation of the Bible into the common language because they didn't want people to misinterpret it. At least that's what they said. So Catholics had to depend on the priest as the correct interpreters of the scripture. That is not the correct interpretation of the scripture. In fact, I want you to know that the church is not over the word. The word is over the church. doesn't matter what the church says. It matters what the word says, and the church is supposed to follow the word of God. I'm not being ugly. I'm not being critical. I'm just stating a fact here. I've always said, if I can get my Catholic friends to really read their Bible, they'll find the gospel there. In fact, you wouldn't believe how many people died for you to have a copy of this in your hand. They were martyred. So what does this mean? Well, I believe Peter's saying two things here. First of all, God's word came as a result of heavenly inspiration. He says in verse 21 they were moved by the Holy Spirit, and no prophecy came by the will of man. The word translated interpretation here appears only here in the Bible. I want you to follow this because it means a loosening or a liberation. figuratively speaking, it means to interpret something that once was obscure. If you had a gift, somebody hands you a gift that's wrapped for your birthday or Christmas, whatever, you don't know what's on the inside. Nobody else does either. And so you unwrap it, you unloosen it, you uh, unveil it, so to speak, so that you can See what's on the inside. You can interpret it. You know what it is. Well, this verse to me seems to be referring to the source of Scripture because the word is in verse 19, excuse me, verse 20, is can mean comes or came about. No prophecy of Scripture came about by any private interpretation. Now, you couple that with 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is God-breathed. And I believe this is referring to, some people say, well, it means you can't interpret the Bible on yourself. I believe it means two things. I believe it's talking about the source of the Scripture. It didn't come from any one person's or a group of people's ideas and their own um, thoughts. It came from God, but I also believe that infers this. It means that you cannot interpret the Bible according to your own whims or desires. You don't bring yourself to the Bible and say, well, I'm going to make the Bible fit my lifestyle. I want to do this and I want to do that. Surely I can find a verse that says I can No, we're to interpret the Scripture not based on our own private whims. We are to interpret it based on what God said in the text, and then you adapt your life to it, not the other way around. So it has a heavenly inspiration. I believe it's referring to the origin and interpreting it objectively. Because, see, to interpret it according to your own subjective feelings would be to twist the Scripture. And that's what Peter's going to show you in chapter 3. They're twisting the Scripture. Oh, listen, you don't think that's happening today? Oh, my word. People take Scripture and twist it and make it sound just like what they want you to think it says instead of saying, thus saith the Lord, this is what the Word of God says. So, the Word of God came by heavenly inspiration, but it also came by human involvement. Now, I'm about to get technical with you, and I didn't write this stuff down for you, but I want you to stay with me. I know you filled in the last blank, but I'm far from finished. Stay with me here because I want you to get this. It's pretty technical, but you need to know it. You'll notice the word moved in verse 21. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's the same word using, describing a ship that's being, um, been, the, the ship is being pushed by the wind. The wind fills the sails and pushes it forward. It means to um, carry along or to bear it. They're being moved. 2 Timothy said it's God-breathed. The Scripture's God-breathed. He's the author. I read of a young boy who was giving his grandmother a Bible for Christmas, and he wanted to write something that was real special in the flyleaf, but he did not know what to write. But he noticed a book that his dad dearly loved and treasured, so he opened that book up, and he copied what was written inside the flyleaf of this book that dad loved, Gave the Bible as a gift to his grandmother. She opened the present, was pleased to receive the Bible, but she was amused by the inscription because it said, to grandma with compliments of the author. (laughs) People have different concepts today. You will hear this. You will hear this by liberals in the ch- liberal theologians. You will hear this in some schools that are supposed to be teaching the truth, but they don't. I heard this when I was in school. There's some different concepts of inspiration that I want you to understand. The first one is called natural inspiration, that's not the way the scripture came. Natural inspiration basically says that we can be inspired by something and we write about it. Like Shakespeare's writings might inspire you or you see a beautiful painting, it might inspire you. And they basically say that the human writers were inspired and so they wrote down their own thoughts. But that leaves God completely out of the equation and we know that's not true because the scripture itself says it was God-breathed and they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The second is partial inspiration. Now there's three, three different thoughts here. So the, the second's partial inspiration, but get they're all wrong, but gonna, I want you to know about them. So stay with me. The first is that, that it, the Bible is a human product, but it contains the Word of God. That in the writing, God used imperfect men and, he would, and they would, he would sort of suggest a few things, and they would write down some of the spiritual things that God wanted to, people to know. But when it came down to the historical and scientific and all the other things, that it's just, just human error, basically. But it contains some of the scriptural truths that uh, God wanted you to know. But the problem is, what do you know what's truth and what's not? You know, you don't know. Because anybody can always say, well, that's just his opinion. Another view of partial inspiration is the idea that scriptures are a human product, and they have errors and faults, but it becomes the Word of God when you read it. That God condescends and uses all of these human people to, to make the Word of God come to you as you read it. That's that's a stretch to me. It's a big stretch. It's it's as if God were just not really speaking, but he was using that. and, And so, how would we know if it was God speaking or us speaking or us thinking? You know, I might read the scripture and go, is it my thinking that says this or is it God? You wouldn't know. The third partial inspiration theory is that The ideas we find in the Bible are inspired by God, but he allowed them to write in their own words, in their own imperfect way, and thus God's perfect truth would be imperfectly communicated through imperfect expressions. But folks, none of those are what the Bible says about itself. Now, very few people believe this actually, but we are accused of a third type of inspiration, and that would be, for lack of a better word, I'll call it mechanical inspiration which means that somehow these guys were in a trance and God used them as some kind of human typewriter to write down all that stuff. Now, that's, that's overly simplified, but that's basically what they say, that they didn't have any say or they didn't have any personality. They just basically were, and they don't even know if they did it or not. Maybe they did, but God dictated to them the word. That's, the Bible doesn't say that either. So what do we believe in the inspiration We believe that God moved through humans to write down every word. He didn't write it, but he allowed them. We call it the the verbal plenary inspiration, which means that God was involved in everything they said and wrote down. They weren't robots, but it was 100% involvement by humans and 100% involvement by God, which is sort of like the incarnation. You can't completely understand it. But for example, you'll see that it says that Peter said they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah does not write like Ezekiel. Daniel does not write write like Jeremiah. Moses has a unique touch. He's matter-of-fact. David tells it, he tells of experiences also, but he's more emotional and more sensitive sensitive. John, the fisherman's quiet. Peter is very bold and unpolished. Paul is scholarly and systematic. Luke writes like a physician, drawing the writings from others like he's putting a thesis together and is is making careful observations about health issues. Each of these writers displays his own individual personality and style, and they were involved in what they wrote But God moved them in everything they wrote. They were born along. He ensured that things that they wrote and the words that they used and the ideas they conveyed were all exactly what he wanted written. There is no error in God's word. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.13, These things we speak also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The Bible is reliable. The Bible is inerrant. The Bible is truth. There is nothing like it. There is no other testament of this Bible. There's no additions to it. R. A. Tory had a sermon entitled Ten Reasons Why I Believe the Bible is True. It was D. L. Moody's favorite sermon. He said, the testimony of Jesus Christ, fulfilled prophecies, the unity of the book, the exalted teaching in comparison to every other book, the history of the book, its ability to survive burning and banning and doubt and skepticism, the character of those who accepted the book and those who reject the book, the Bible's influence, the inexhaustible depth of the book, our growth and knowledge and holiness as we grow toward the Bible, and the direct testimony of the Holy Spirit. Folks, You need to lay hold of this Bible until the Bible lays hold on you. That's why we teach the Word of God. We're not about gimmicks. We're not about trying to just draw a crowd with a bunch of stuff that makes people feel good. We want to know, God, what did you say to us and how is it relevant to us today And you need to understand this because, see, there are going to be people right now who tell you, y'all are a bunch of idiots. Jesus isn't returning. You're going to see that in chapter 2. You really believe that Bible was written by 40 different people over 1,600 years? Yeah, I believe every word of it. I even believe the maps in the back of it. This Bible says there's only one way to be saved. That's through Jesus Christ. The Bible says there's only one way to heaven. That's through Jesus Christ. The Bible says there's only one way for you to have purpose and meaning in this life. And that's through Jesus Christ. And so if you respond to him today, you will be saved. The scripture says that. Would you
0: bow your heads with me? Thank you, Pastor David. In our passage from 2 Peter 1, the Apostle spoke about his experience of witnessing a glorified Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He illustrated how this not only affirmed Christ's deity, acknowledged the work of Jesus, and authenticated the truth of Scripture, but also how it attested to a coming kingdom of God. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Be sure to catch our next installment of the Southcrest Live podcast. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Southcrest Baptist Church. Services are 8 a.m., 9.30, and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings and 6 p.m. on Wednesdays. We're located at 3801 South Loop 289 in Lubbock, Texas. If you can't join us in person, be part of our online congregation at southcrestlive.tv to stream our Sunday services live at 9.30 or 11. For more information, visit our website at southcrest.org.